Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Patience Adamo. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we parse through the weekly decisions being made by our political leaders that impact the Black community. You ready? Let's do it. Yo, Curtis, did you watch the presidential debate this week? Couldn't miss it. You with that stand-back and stand-by energy? Never that. <laughs> so we've been we've been gone for a couple of weeks and we wanted to first thank you for coming back to the drip and listening to us talk about politics and talk about blackness during a racial revolution. I personally was unable to to do the podcast for a couple of weeks just because getting back into the swing of September and teaching at Ryerson and being just really overwhelmed by wave two starting up again was was a really really difficult challenge for for me. What about you, Curtis? How did how was your last couple of weeks? Yeah, yeah. You know, some of you may know that uh, myself and my partner at Here to Uplift Black Men, Mike Paul Newville, we put on a education panel, and uh, it was really well attended. Uh, Patients, you were there actually, weren't you? I was always trying to support. So instead of me saying all these great things, why don't you kind of share what your thoughts were on the event? I thought it was a really great conversation about how the education system has failed us and what is needed, uh, particularly in this time, in this moment, to come together and fix it and and get the system to really serve us and our children the the way that we deserve. So it was a really thought full uh, session. I thought, uh, you know, Curtis, I think you you always do a really good job of facilitating, but particularly when you're on a Zoom webinar, it it can be a little bit challenging, but I thought you did a really good job of uh, making sure that that, um, the the panelists, the three panelists really had their voices heard. I thought it was a, it was a great event. You are so kind. Thank you for that. Um, Yeah. I mean, we had uh, Hugh Anthony Simmons, uh, who was a professor at Ryerson. We also had uh, Carrie Daniel, who is the who is a founding committee member of Parents of Black Children, and then we finally had uh, Vidal Chavan, who is a high ranking education strategist. And you know, they they all came, like you said, to to find solutions to the problems that we're facing right now. And I, I loved that there were not only Black folks, there were white folks, there were people from different backgrounds, and everybody who was there was there to find solutions and to to really just to uplift the Black people in this time. We even had a representative from the ministry. I don't know if you saw that, Patience, but... Uh, I didn't. Yeah, I was doing a debrief with Vidal after the fact, and uh, he literally got a call from somebody who was in the event from the ministry who specifically attended the event because the ministry told him to and report back with any developments about what Hub is all about. So... Very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we jump right in? 
Let's do it. This past week, the government's legislation finally passed, ensuring that millions of Canadians would receive financial support for at least the next six months. Employment Minister Carla Qualtrill's bill replaces the 500-week CERB, which gave real financial help to almost 9 million Canadians, with a package of new programs. EI increased from 400 to 500 bucks a week to match the CERB benefit. And on top of that, there's a new Canada recovery benefit, which will be available to people who still don't qualify for EI. The legislation also creates two new benefits, one for sick leave and the other for people who stay at home to care for a dependent. The new measures will cost $34 billion. The bill also included $17 billion in other COVID-19 related spending. Thoughts on these developments, patients? I'm really happy to see that it's going to match existing funding or existing mm-hmm. um, payments that people were receiving because I do think we've gotten into quite uh, a steady space in, in our rebuilding phase. So really, really happy to know that people are not going to starve and that they're going to continue to be supported. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just yesterday I was um, I was a part of a webinar hosted by um, TSA, which is a government relations firm, but they hosted the Council General for Canada in San Francisco, as well as a senior associate from Citigroup. So these are two finance people. And, and both of them said, look, this is not the time for austerity. This is the time to spend. This is the time to support individuals and, and small businesses. And that's exactly what the government is doing. So I'm happy with it, too. The one thing that I'm a little concerned about, patients, if I'm honest, is, you know, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how monumental the government's uh, legislation would be in order to change and fill gaps that existed because of COVID or that that were made clear because of COVID. So far, I'm not really seeing that. Hmm. So I'm wondering if there was, you know, there was a buildup and they changed their minds. And if so, why did they change their minds? Yeah. Moving on, uh, the federal immigration minister, Marco Mendocino, said beginning October 8th, extended family members of Canadians and permanent residents can enter Canada, including grandparents, children, siblings, and people who have been in in an exclusive relationship for a year. Couples will have to provide a notarized declaration to prove they've been together for at least a year and have spent some time in the physical presence of one another. So all you waste man cheaters, you can't do... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The government is still stressing that travelers shouldn't make any plans until they've gotten pre-arrival authorization. They're also introducing a process to allow foreigners who don't qualify as extended family or who aren't in a relationship to enter for compassionate reasons, like people who want to say goodbye to someone who may be passing or providing care for someone who needs medical support or to attend a funeral. People may also be or may also not be required to quarantine depending on the situation. The opposition is pretty happy with this news, but they think that this policy, this new policy, should have been brought in sooner. Are you pleased with it? I'm, I guess I'm troubled by what sooner would have looked like. But I, I think that it's fair that people who have been waiting to, to enter Canada through the immigration process um, which I'm not sure how much we've, we've spoken about this on this platform, Curtis, but uh, it's a really expensive thing to go through, you know, to apply 
for permanent residency in Canada or to apply for a, a student visa or any kind of a, of, a, of a worker's visa to work in Canada. It's super, super expensive. For, so what for is that, $50,000? Is, it is easily $50,000 depending on where you're coming from, and, and especially mm-hmm. if you've secured an immigration lawyer to support your application. In the case of Canada, often people need to prove that they have enough money to support themselves. So they mm-hmm. need to keep money in, in a special account uh, to show the government of Canada that when they get here, they won't be kind of, you know, going to a homeless shelter or whatever, that they will have enough money to, to pay for rent or to pay for a hotel and, and, and kind of take care of themselves. So it's a lot of money. It's a really, I mean, I know that we're all kind of feeling like our lives have been paused, but like every day really does, does count. So I'm, I'm happy to, to see that people who are, uh, close relatives or, or loved ones of Canadians are are going to be allowed in. And I think that this is good timing. I, I can't see it, it having happened any earlier. Yeah, I think I agree with that too. I mean, I, I think it was just two or three weeks ago that we were talking about somebody who I know who was very adamant that the border should be reopened so that she could see her boyfriend again, who is from Atlanta, I believe it is. And back then I was pretty adamant that, look, the, the border should be closed, just period. But with this development, I, you know, it's, it makes sense. So I, I'm not bothered by it. I'll say that. Premier Doug Ford has finally started acting like the second wave he knew would come is here. As a result, he mandated mass rules for the entire province. As in, before his latest rules, only major regions like the GTA or Ottawa were required to be masked up. He's also reduced capacity for restaurants, bars, and nightclubs in Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa to 100 patrons and just six people per table, along with stricter contact tracing rules. The province is also capping group fitness classes at 10 participants with just... I'm sorry, but why are people doing group fitness classes in the middle of a pandemic? Anyway, I'll leave that alone. With just 50 people allowed in a gym. Banquet halls will also be capped at 50 people. Ford also said the concept of the 10-person social circle is on pause. On top of that, he also mandated appointments by testing only so people aren't stuck waiting for hours in the cold. That makes a lot of sense. According to numerous health officials, though, this doesn't go far enough. Toronto Medical Officer of Health Dr. Aileen DeVia, for example, wanted to see a month-long suspension of all indoor dining, gym classes, and indoor sports, at least for Toronto. I'm in favor of that, too. She also urged people to stay home except for essential outings like work, school, physical distance activities, and grocery runs. Ottawa Public Health warns that the health system is, quote, in crisis, and the Ontario Health Association and the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario both say that without stricter measures like what Dr. DeVia is proposing, a surge of COVID-19 patients could overwhelm our hospitals. On Friday, Ontario had a record 732 new infections with a growing backlog of samples topping 90,000. Sources indicate the province has uh, the province was advised by its own experts to expand from a goal of forty to fifty thousand to between seventy five and one hundred thousand tests throughout the summer, but they didn't. So, patients, are you going to be having Thanksgiving next week? So I'm torn. I well, one thing that we we haven't spoken about and we don't have to speak about is is how the the cases differ across Ontario. 
Mm. So the case numbers are, are pretty high in Toronto and Peel. And then I think also York is kind of in that same kind of grouping. But where we lived, Curtis and Durham, we're fine. Like we're, we're pretty okay. If my whole family lived in Durham region, I, I think I would be having Thanksgiving with my, with my family. However, mm. my family lives right in Branton, fam. <laughs> Saying that's a big no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a it's a it's a pretty hard no for now. <laughs> I think if if things were to to change and, and if people in that in that vicinity were kind of you know becoming more mask efficient, I don't know. Like maybe that would change. But uh, as much as I, I love my mother and my brothers and and all that, like if they're going to the same grocery stores as people who refuse to wear masks, yeah, or people who. Uh, you know, refuse to sanitize their hands or, or, or wash their hands, uh, then, then, you know, is, is, is it really worth it for some turkey leg? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I mean, the stuffing is lit, though. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of feel the same. I mean, look, so there, there, there's two families that I have. I got my own family, and then I got Tamika's family. My family, I really don't think we should be meeting because, I mean, you know, as you just said, I live in Durham, but then there's family in Peel, there's family in York, there's family in Scarborough. Like, it just, no, no. Areas that are highly problematic right now, so I, I really don't think we should be doing that. That said, Tamika's family, they're all in Durham. So... I think I'll still be having some turkey. I don't know. We'll see. Speaking of COVID, uh, the federal government has approved a 15-minute tool for COVID testing called ID Now. There's concern that it's not as accurate as PCR testing, which is the gold standard, but it seems medical practitioners are welcoming this development. I'm sure Aaron O'Toole is too. Jumping to the economy, the Liberals promised to spend $10 billion on infrastructure, like on internet for rural areas, clean energy, and agricultural projects, part of a plan to boost growth and create 1 million jobs in response to the pandemic. The funding will flow through the Canada Infrastructure Bank and is expected to create 60,000 jobs. And the plan has five elements. One is $2.5 billion for clean power to support renewable generation and storage and to transmit clean electricity between provinces, territories, and indigenous communities. Then there's $2 billion to help connect about 750,000 homes and small businesses to broadband in, or in underserved communities. There's also $2 billion for large-scale energy-efficient building retrofits. There's also $1.5 billion for agriculture irrigation projects to boost production, strengthen Canada's food security, and expand export opportunities. And finally... There's $1.5 billion to speed up the adoption of zero emission buses and charging infrastructure. The CIB, that's the Canada Infrastructure Bank, which was created in 2017, has been criticized for delays in getting projects launched. So hopefully with this announcement, which to be honest, is kind of a re-announcement, some money actually starts to flow. What's going on with our people, Patience? Well, in this week's Black, Blackity Black news, uh, this past week was actually the first annual Black Foodie Week. A celebration. Yes, it was a celebration of Black food culture in Toronto. Each day featured interactive segments, digital content, and live streamed activations that profile prominent Black chefs, 
restaurants, and food entrepreneurs in Toronto. So let's talk about the impact on Black businesses and, and small business owners in the city of Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. With a supportive partnership to the City of Toronto, Restaurants Canada, and the Culinary Tourism Alliance, Black Foodie Week offered Torontonians many ways to discover the diversity and creativity within the city's Black culinary scene. There was a, a really great quote that I wanted to share by Ellen Aseru, the strategic lead and producer at Black Foodie. She said, quote, as the city reopens and regains one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Some of its liveliness and vibrancy, it is crucial we ensure that Black chefs, Black-owned restaurants, and Black culinary creatives are receiving the support they need. This carries even more weight when thinking of the moment we're currently living in. Black Foodie Week provides a voice to those ignored and dismissed for a very long time by the culinary world. Patience, you mind if I just give a real quick shout out to, to Eden Hagos, who is the, the, the founder of Black Foodie. For sure. Uh, That's my girl. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know what? So I, I haven't spoken to her directly in a long time now, but it's funny. We, we first met uh, in 2016, I think it was, um, and she was at a uh, creative... Oh, boy. It was, it was a conference meant to spur up people like her who are doing these kinds of events right now. And I remember speaking her, speaking to her directly and she was, she was very um, interested in learning how to develop herself on social media so she could get her voice out and look at what she's done. Great things. I'm so proud of her. I'm sure you're proud of her. We are all proud of her. Eden, you are doing wonderfully. Keep it up. Yeah. In not so black news, but, you know, BIPOC news, BIPOC meaning black, indigenous and people of color, an indigenous woman is called stupid as hell by nurses, renewing calls for the country to confront its own systemic racism. So this happened a little closer to home. A a video came out showing hospital staff in Montreal taunting an indigenous woman has left a community in mourning and renewed calls for the country to really, really look at what it's doing around systemic racism. Her name, Joyce Echequan, a 37-year-old Atikamek woman, uh, arrived at a hospital in the Quebec city of Joliet on Monday complaining of stomach pain. The mother of seven had previously suffered similar issues and told staff she had a heart condition. Uh, After that, you know, she really took matters into her own hands and started live streaming her experience on Facebook as her pain escalated and staff at the hospital appeared indifferent to her pleas for help. In the footage, Etchequan is seen grimacing as nurses call her stupid as hell, asking her, are you done acting stupid? Are you done? And, uh, 
you know, eventually they gave her morphine and she, um, she, she died. She passed away. The family thinks that um, the staff gave her too much morphine, which contributed to her death. Patience, I don't know about you, but I, I did. I, first of all, I'm very happy that you're talking about this, even if it's not black news. Um, because like you said, this is this is what black and indigenous people are dealing with. Right. And um, I was I was angry as hell. I was angry as hell reading the story. Um, I, I don't know if there. So she did record it. I, I decided not to even try to look at the recording. So I, I did. You look at that? I didn't. I, I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm not really the the best person for for that kind of of trauma. I, I would. Mm-hmm. It would be really difficult for me. I, straight up, like I've uh, you know the the. the the George Floyd issue, and, and quite frankly, Regis and, and others, Andre. I mean, uh, it really impacted my mental health a few months ago. I'm, I'm just not doing that anymore. I'm not. Um, but I'm. I'm. I mean, what do we say? That we've been saying this has been a problem for some time, and there are still people who are are not accepting it, and that is maddening as hell. Um, if I were the husband of Miss Ekakwan, I, I don't know what I'd be doing right now but I wish him peace. I, I don't, I don't know what else to say. In terms of the world, I mean, we are no strangers to Twitter or to Instagram. The biggest news story is that Trump has COVID. Do I, should I clap or? Let's let's do a little applause. Yeah, let's do it. After all of that, early Friday morning, literally like right after midnight, Trump took to Twitter to announce that he and Melania Trump had been confirmed with positive cases to have COVID-19. This result comes after he spent months playing down the severity of the outbreak that has killed 207,000 people in the United States. And hours, only hours, after insisting that, quote, the end of the pandemic is in sight. Yeah, and trying to shit on Joe Biden for always wearing his mask and doing what is required in this time. Right. So President Donald Trump is being treated at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center for COVID-19 and has begun receiving an antiviral drug, his doctor announced Friday night. So this is where I think the conversation is really going to start with, with, with us today, Curtis. I have, a, I, I have seen so much online. Mm-hmm. There are people predicting that this is a stunt to promote the use of whatever antiviral drug this is, which is which is not a vaccine, right? Which is a treatment rather than a, a preemptive measure. So that's one. Uh, another theory um, is that, you know, because Trump is, is in this military center for the, the 14 days that is, you know, presumed, that it is presumed to take to recover from COVID-19, that he's really gonna not be on any kind of campaign trail uh, for the most critical parts of his campaign. And the, people think that that is a, a tactic to mm. keep headlines sympathetic to him and, and what he's currently going through. So, so th- 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 I think that's where we're at for now. I'm sure there are more theories about why this is happening. But the one is that, that people will be more sympathetic 
to Trump mm-hmm. because he has COVID and another help him in his ongoing fight to get this hydroxychloroquine or some version of hydroxychloroquine out uh, as the drug of choice for the treatment of COVID-19. Any thoughts, Curtis? I'm actually processing the last thing you just said. You think that this is a, or you're hearing that this is to get hydroxychloroquine approved? Yes, yes. So I have read... That isn't even logical to me. Oh, well, <laughs> what, else <laughs> what else is new? So it, it hasn't been confirmed that hydroxychloroquine is indeed the antiviral drug that he is using, but it is the, the drug that he has been mentioning uh, for a long time in his uh, kind of Twitter rants. Um, he has really been been pushing that hydroxychloroquine should be used to treat COVID-19 rather than this this wait uh, that the world, the, the world right now is really waiting for a vaccine, right? But I think Trump has been pretty clear that we, we don't really need to stop the world and wait for this vaccine. So I, I think that there there are two camps, two major camps, and this is what I'm pulling from, you know, articles from the New York Times and the CNN, is that there are folks who think that this is a, an attempt for, for sympathy, and there are folks who think that this is an attempt for support for this antiviral drug. Oh, I can understand the sympathy, no question. I mean, I've, I've been kind of paying attention to different world leaders in their elections, including our own, to be really frank. Oh. Um, and uh, I've seen, I've been seeing a trend where if they don't feel like they're going to handily win, there is a um, there's a security threat, and obviously the security threat always makes the current leader look better. Right. So that that could be at play. What I what I know <laughs> what I know is that Trump. Um, he needs, uh, on the one hand, it's like, I hope he recovers because if he doesn't, then he's going to become a martyr and if he becomes a martyr, then his followers are going to be even more destructive than they are now. On the flip side, if he doesn't die, then he becomes, what's the word? Like a revolutionary leader. Well, he, well, he becomes the person who beat the virus. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, and that's even, I don't know if that's worse. So, yeah, I don't know. He just he he just needs to to lose in November. Period. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I also wanted to add one last thing. A lot of people have been saying that Trump has called COVID a hoax in the past, and although he d- he certainly did not take it seriously, uh, and has admitted to to having not taken it seriously at the beginning. Uh, I, I use this fact-checking site called Snopes.com, mm-hmm. and um, Snopes has pretty definitively said that despite creating some confusion in, in his remarks, Trump did not call the coronavirus itself a hoax. Ultimately, actions speak louder than words, though, don't they? They do. In other news, Africa is reported to be beating COVID. Okay. Okay. The African continent has experienced fewer COVID-19 casualties than initially predicted. According to the World Health Organization, the continent has benefited from social and environmental factors and really strong public health measures. While infections spread worldwide, COVID-19 cases have been declining across the African continent since July. The reason, according to the World Health Organization and other experts, is the result of a combination of early intervention mobility, and the age of the population. 
just for context, 40% of the African population is younger than 14 years old. That is like, I know that, but it's so wild to, to see that in my face. It's pretty wild. It's, it's a pretty wild, like, like imagine if Canada, imagine if 40% of Canada's population was under 14 years old. Yeah, man. That's a different world. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in addition to those, those really favorable factors, um, years of experience battling previous pandemics, you know, Ebola, um, malaria, uh, which isn't, I mean, anyway, other kind of viral diseases um, has really helped to ensure that the, that the continent's response was swift and more tailored to their actual local needs and capacities in comparison to the way that we've been dealing with it in other parts of the world. And where under normal circumstances, Africa would get a lot of help, like like it did with Ebola and like it did with other diseases. It hasn't really gotten a lot of help from the international community because everyone is kind of worried about themselves, uh, which has forced them to seek out solutions internally rather than to wait for resources or support. So COVID-19 has actually made Africa stronger. The stock of our people is rising. Yeah, there we go. A last, almost, it's not a funny story, but it's... (laughs) I think it's funny as hell. It's a a tale of of two ways to deal with COVID. So we have the rest of the world. You know, Africa is beating COVID. Canada, or in particular, Ontario, is trying to, you know, fight against its second wave. But you know what they're doing in Indonesia? Tell us. Tell us what they're doing. People who refuse to wear masks in Indonesia are forced to dig graves for COVID-19 victims. Mm. <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, look, if I were a leader, I wouldn't be doing that. But at the same time, to be fair, Curtis, they have, <laughs> they have options. So if you live, if you live in this, this part of uh, the East Java region of of Indonesia, I think it's called Sermi, uh, and you are caught not wearing a mask, you have a couple of options. So you can accept a fine of 150,000 rupiah, which is equivalent to about $10 in the US, Mm -hmm. or you can accept what they're calling a social punishment. Oh boy. And while most people have accepted social punishments such as push-ups or cleaning, uh, the leader of, of Serme hopes that grave digging <laughs> that grave digging will show firsthand the real and serious effect of COVID-19 and has added that none of the grave diggers were present when the bodies were buried. So they, they come in advance, they dig the graves, and then they leave. According to Johns Hopkins University, Indonesia does have the highest death toll in Southeast Asia. Uh, and they did begin requiring mask wearing in April. So it's, it's pretty unacceptable uh, at this point to uh, not be wearing a mask. And this is just a tale for those of you who still refuse to wear that mask when you go into that shopper's drug mart. You know, this is just so you guys know, it's not that hard out here. Uh, really like you really could be digging a grave. So chill out. And for the record, like somebody like me, for example, I actually currently work in healthcare. I mask up every day, all day, nine hours a day. It's really not that hard. Yeah. Just do it. On this episode's question for the audience, we wanted to know, 
are you going to be celebrating Thanksgiving with your family in light of the second wave? Oh, and by the way, for the record, it's still fuck Christopher Columbus, though. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. We now have our own Instagram page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us at The Drip Deal. Black people, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E for all your graphic design needs. See y'all next time. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.